I'd invite you to turn the New Testament that you have to the fourth chapter of Acts, and we're going to continue our study tonight. And as we trace the progression of the church, the development of the book of Acts. I suppose that, um, you know, I used to hear people say, you know, when you get older, you get kind of concerned about time and uh, age. You get a little melancholy or sentimental. Uh, you know, and I, I didn't think anything about it. You know, people died and, and people got old and I never thought anything about it. I, I'm, I'm really concerned. I, I'm getting, that's bothering me a little bit. And I'm bothered that I'm bothered. That's the thing that bothers me. Uh, that uh, we have such a little time to live on this earth. And uh, how important are these, um, these days that we have to live? And how important are the, the times that we get together to study God's Word? Isn't it, a, isn't it a wonderful thing that we can come together and study the Word of God? I mean, this is God's Word. And that in the very study of God's Word, His own Spirit, His own Self, own personality helps us to understand that word. And there's nothing any more important than that taking place anywhere in the world than the people who gather together and study the Word of God. And what we learn when we come together to study the Word of God can be life-changing, can be world-changing. And it's just extra special. And um, I used to sit back in the back of our little church and make the, you know, the lights were just right so that you can make these, you know, animals. And, uh, and on the floor, you know, I'd make these shadows and, and that kind of a thing. And, and missed out on the whole business of learning of the Word of God when I was a young person. And... Um, um, realizing that, that you are here tonight because you want to know the Word of God. That's such an important, important thing. Well, I could go on with that, but that's what happens when you get old, gang. You get, uh, you get a little <laughs> sentimental. Verse 23 of chapter 4. Now we're just picking up where we left off from last Sunday. I like to study it verse by verse, don't you? That's the excitement I'm looking for. That's the enthusiasm I hope that I could generate when I gave you that little spill there. Three of you nodded your head slightly. <laughs> and when they had been released, that is Peter and John, they went to their own companions that word is in italics. It's added for understanding. The best way to say it is, they went to their own and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Just notice, they went to their own. Listen, folk, there are some people that you can go to that, that, that speak your language and understand your feelings. They're your own. And then there are these uh, fair-weather friends, you know, that are uh, there for a while, but not long. 
And when they'd heard this, that is, when these their own heard, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is Thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, Thy servant, didst say, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against Thy holy servant Jesus, whom Thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever Thy hand and Thy purpose predestined to occur. Who caused Calvary? He predestined it and used the very acts of the, of the heathen to cause it to come to pass. And now, Lord, take note of, your, of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence while thou, hast, while thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed anything that belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need Joseph a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. May God speak through his word to us tonight. There's something incomparable about a pioneer, one of these people who has forged out a path without the help of a predecessor. Somebody's just kind of cut his own way. There's a kind of a strength of character in these great men, these pioneers of the past, an unerring integrity. We've seen some new pioneers in the field of space recently. Uh, one of these men died just recently by the name of Swigert. You may have read that. He was on the mission that was aborted uh, to the moon and didn't make it, uh, an explosion on there, and they had to bring that thing back manually. Swigert, uh, Swigert uh, ran for the uh, Senate or Congress in California, was defeated, ran again, and won. Before he took the oath of office, another mission was aborted. He died with cancer. His best friend, who was the man who defeated him the first time he ran for the Senate, read the 150th Psalm in his presence when he died. There's something kind of dynamic about a pioneer. 
a pioneer missionary was the same sort of person who just kind of cut a new swath. They seemed to kind of feed on the insurmountable barriers that existed before them. And there's a couple of things that characterized a pioneer missionary. They were tough without, that is, they were unbending, they were unyielding, they, they refused to quit. That word just wasn't in their vocabulary. They just did not give up. They were unyielding and they took a stand and they would not bend on it. They were tough without and they were tender within. There's a kind of a sensitivity about the pioneer missionary that just kind of uh, characterizes and marks their life. They were so sensitive to the Spirit of God and to their position, their place, and they had an intensity of feeling and they understood what people were going through. They were tough without. They were tender within. And we're just the opposite. We're sissies, you know, without, most of us, kind of tender without, so fragile. I mean, the least thing uh, discourages us, defeats us. The least amount of pressure, and we bend. The least amount of strain, and we snap. We're so tender without. And the word quit, the word I can't, has become a dominant word in our thought and life, in our mind. I just can't do it, so I won't try. We're tender without. We're tough within. We're stubborn and unbending and unyielding. Where we need to be sensitive, we're not. Where we need to be feeling, we're not. The thing that characterizes the modern church in the minds of many people is not its unity, but its strife. Not its compassion, but its indifference. Not its concern, but its lack of. And so we're just exactly the opposite. Johann Weiss has a marvelous two-volume treatment of the er what he calls early Christianity, earliest Christianity. In this, he said, there are five things that characterize the early Christian. One was their tempestuous enthusiasm. They were just always excited, kind of like the Vikings when they beat the cowboys, I suppose. Secondly, there was an overwhelming intensity of feeling. It touched them in the heart when somebody was, was suffering, when there was need. They were moved by that. There was an intensity of feeling. Third, there was an immediate awareness of the presence of God. They sensed Him with them. Fourth, there was an unconquerable sense of power. They felt they could never be defeated. And fifth, there was an irresistible control over the will and the inner spirit. And so these early Christians, these pioneers, stood alone a lot of times, and they stood without bending, and yet they knelt often and went before God in utter dependence upon Him. They were tough without, tender within. In our text tonight, the church begins to expose its true colors because a person's real character and, and, and the true colors of a Christian can only be revealed or exposed in the time of, uh, of stress or persecution or opposition. And the first time of persecution for the church begins or began in the text we read last night. And they took these Christians 
who had been preaching in the name of Jesus the resurrection from the dead, and they brought them before the Sanhedrin, and the persecution had begun. And they told them, now, we don't want you to speak or to preach uh, again in the name of Jesus. And as they had these Christians before the Sanhedrin, two things impressed them. They were impressed, first of all, by their toughness. I mean, they took knowledge that these men were, were uh, strong and courageous and un, unbending. I mean, they were fearless. And these were the same men who had literally fled and deserted Jesus at the cross. And, and one of them was a man who had denied him before just a little band of folk gathered around a fire. And all of a sudden these men were fearless and courageous and un, unafraid and unbending and unyielding. They saw they were tough. And they saw how tender they were. For they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And there was something about them that reminded them of this Galilean, this Nazarene, who was so loving and compassionate and tender. Now, it, was, it staggered them. It, was, it, it amazed them that here were these men who had absolutely no fear of anything or anybody, and yet they had a sensitivity that was deeper than anything they'd ever seen in a man before, not even in a woman. And so they threatened them and they set them free and you know what the first thing he did? The text says that the first thing they did, they came to their own. Now, I don't know how that captures you, but you know, just reading that story this week, just kind of trying to find some word for tonight, it was such a, it was such a blessing just to read that. And in my mind, I could see these men who, who understood that they were marked for death and probably would not survive long as Christians. I mean, just to bear the name of Christ, put the death mark on you. And when they had been threatened and persecution, they knew was imminent. I mean, you do that again, and your children and your family is in trouble. And they came together in a little group. They came together with their own. Can't you just see them? It'd be just like, I suppose, if we all knew that this would be the last time we would ever meet together and we'd be scattered and persecuted and this world would be, you know, be devastated by a nuclear explosion. If that were imminent, how different this meeting tonight would be. Or suppose just coming together and you know that this would be the last time some of you would see each other again or probably the last time you'd ever meet again alive on earth. There was that tenderness of that meeting. They came together. And I'm sure there was the hand clasp and the hugs and the love that just kind of oozed out the pores of these marvelous people. I found a verse of Scripture. I want you to turn to it. I don't want you just to hear it. I want you to read it. It's, it's Job. You know where Job is, don't you? That looks like Job. I know the, I was so embarrassed when, when I first, you know, as a young Christian, a young guy, I was going to do the, I was going to do the devotional at camp, and I read from Job and uh, was reminded that that's not the way. Chapter 6, verse 14. I want you to look at that, that verse. My, you know, 
what, what a word. It says, For the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, lest he forsake the fear of the Almighty, lest he forsake God. And that was what was happening here. They, got to, they came together with their own, and they found the kindness and the understanding and the love and the support and the nurture of their friends and it buoyed them, gave them confidence and courage. That's the church, folks. That's the church. The basic unit for encouragement and comfort and strength in the world is the family. And the basic unit for encouragement and strength in the Christian community is the family of the church. And it ought to be that this place here, this church, this group of people would be like a sanctuary where we come together and know that I can find as I share with my friends, as I unload my inner feelings, as I, as I spill my guts, so to speak, that I can find in my friends encouragement and a strength that will keep me going when the going's tough. Now, where you are in the little worksheet, this kind of gets, you know, this is dynamite. Look at what happens. Verse 24, there was this prayer. Verse 24. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. They, there was this prayer. I want to say um, three or four things about that prayer. First of all, it was spontaneous. They just started praying. You know, nobody said, now let us pray. Or, or nobody said, uh, you know, we're going to have a little devotional. After that devotional time, let's say we're going to spend 15 minutes in prayer. And nobody took turns. They just broke out in prayer. You know, sometimes uh, I'm invited to uh, lead the prayer at an athletic event, you know, and that's not what I list in the top ten most exciting things that a pastor does, but I don't mind doing it. And so I, I'll go out to the athletic event, you know, with my little prayer written out and say the prayer. You know, sometimes I thought, you know what would be more effective than somebody saying the prayer before the kickoff? Wouldn't it be something? If during one of those times, one of those guys got hurt out there on the field, suddenly over the loudspeaker somebody said, Oh God, would you now move? Would you now help? Would you now come and protect and heal and help that child, that young boy who was hurt? You know what that'd do? That'd scare folks. You know, <laughs> you, talk about a, you talk about breaking up the thing. It was just spontaneous. They just broke out in prayer for one another. I used to pastor a large number of seminary students. As you know, I had some unforgettable characters in my church. One of them was a guy named Ken. He's from Florida. He, 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 he must have had some brain damage. Huh? Oh, now hang in there, guys. He, he, had a, he had a terrible speech impediment, and he was a slow thinker. And I don't know how he got out of, out of high school and college. And he was down at the seminary and he was struggling. Old Ken was a sweet guy. Couldn't, couldn't drive a car. It, it, and he talked, pastor, he talked like that. And one day um, the telephone rang at the church and the secretary, Katie, buzzed me and she said, 
some goofy, some goofy guy is on the phone, and I know what has happened. I, 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 I pushed the, the button, and he said, Pastor, I don't know what you're doing right now, but I want to pray for you. And he started praying. I mean, he just started laying it out there. And he prayed, Pastor, and he said, Pastor, I want to pray for you. God, this is my pastor that I love. And he just prayed a sweetest prayer and hung up. About a year ago, my phone rang over to Parsonage here in Duran. I picked up the phone. He said, guess who this is? I said, I couldn't guess. Ken, who in the world that is on a... He said, would you let me pray with you? And he started praying. And there's some kind of a sweetness about that kind of a thing. Have you ever done that? Have you ever just, you know, you know, maybe just felt like it was just right to begin to pray and ask God to bless and move in and, and help and heal, strengthen? Secondly, it claimed the sovereignty of God. That was what they prayed. Their prayer claimed the sovereignty of God. And they said, Oh Lord, Master. And you look at that word in the Greek, and it's a word despota in the Greek. It's, it's the word where we get our word despot. And, and I looked it up in a dictionary, and a despot, you know, that has a kind of a negative connotation now. The word despot means a ruler with absolute authority and power. And so they were praying, Oh, despot! The despot was on the throne. The Lord who had absolute power and authority was, was being called upon now. Now remember that they'd just been hailed before the Sanhedrin and they had just had a rendezvous with the, with the Jewish hierarchy and the Roman power and they were told, don't you speak in the name of Jesus again. But the despot was on the throne and the despota has power and authority and so they claimed his sovereignty over everything. said to a Christian not long ago, so how, how's business? He said, business is in the hand of the Lord. Isn't that great? The despota is on the throne and he is in control and he's ha he has absolute authority. And you investigate this prayer and they said three things in it. They said first, Lord, you made everything. I mean, we're not praying to some Mickey Mouse. We're praying to the God of creation. Secondly, you control everything. And thirdly, he said, you have a plan for everything. In fact, he says, why the very fact that the Jews and the Gentiles crucified Jesus was the predetermined plan of God. I mean, we're not dealing with a, with a, with a, with a man's power and authority. We're dealing with the source of creation and the despota. When you look at this prayer, you'll discover that not one time did they ever say, Lord, get me out of this mess and move me down to big church. 
in Cunningham County seat town. I can't stand it any longer here. Not one time did they say that. I mean, I'd like to go, I'd, I'd even go to a toka. Just get me out of here. Not one time did they say that. They said, God, you're in control and we're resting everything in your authority and in your power. You just take over. What a prayer. Now, it seems to me, folks, that if we really believed that God made everything, I mean even the enemy, and that he is in control of everything, and that he has a definite plan for everything, why in the world would we ever be afraid? Is that, is that, does that make sense to you? Well, I'm so glad you're, whoo, mercy. Uh, Y'all are hearing me. This thing is working, and it walk, walk. You're still out there, I hope. Mercy. It's amazing how fragile we are, as though God were not in authority. Number third thing about this prayer, it had two requests. Notice the request. The request was, take note of their threats. Take note of their threats. I mean, they just told God on them. <laughs> that just kind of really tickles my funny boy and saying, God, these old boys are threatening us. I want you to know that. <laughs> uh, wasn't it... Uh, Martin Luther who said, if I have a Christian who prays for me, I'll be, of strong, be strong and of good courage. But if I have somebody who prays against me, I'd rather have the Grand Turk as my enemy. I mean, he said, now, now God, I'm going to tell you about old Joe down here. He's threatening me. That's all he said. He's told God on him. And the second thing they prayed was, that they might speak with boldness. Now, there's no question about whether or not they would speak. They knew they were going to do that. They were just afraid that when they did, their voice might tremble just a little bit in, in, in fear, and they wanted to preach in boldness. They wanted power when they preached. And the fourth thing they, about this prayer, they emphasized the positive things. Did you see verse 30? They said, look at verse 29. They said, Now, Lord, take note of their frets and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence while thou dost extend thy hand to heal with signs and wonders. Now, what does that say to you? It says, Lord, we just want you to give us boldness while you're doing your miracles in the world. And they, didn't, they had no question about the fact in their own mind that God was going to heal and do signs and wonders. Their, their whole prayer was filled with a positive confidence that God is just going to keep on doing His work and they just want to do theirs. And they didn't say, Lord, would you heal somebody? Or, or Lord, would you give us a sign? They just said, Lord, while you're giving us a sign, while you're healing, let us keep on speaking with boldness. Quite a difference there. Now look at the answer. The answer was that the place was shaken where they were. Their lives were shaken, people were shaken, and the house was shaken. Can I tell you about Ron and Linda Dennis? They're missionaries to Honduras, not Southern Baptists, but missionaries to Honduras. Ron and Linda Dennis went down to Honduras 
when their baby, they have two children now, when their baby was six months old, they took jungle training and they went into the jungles of Honduras to minister to a tribe of Indians, natives, that had not really heard the gospel. They lived in a mud hut with a thatched roof with a six-month-old baby. I mean, they didn't even have television. God forbid they didn't have. And when it rained, they would walk around puddles in that, in that, uh, in that, in that mud hut. And this thatched roof was literally crawling with scorpions. And, and, and so they, they came in there in this little mud hut with a dirt floor and a thatched roof. And they had this baby bed. And, and now where are we going to put it? One room. And, and so they decided they'd put it over here, but there was an anthill over there. Well, what do you do, you know, with the anthill there where you want to put the baby bed? You put a rug over the anthill. They just put a rug over it. Just kind of covered it up. One day they went to tuck their baby in. They found in the bed with a with six-month-old baby two scorpions, and the baby had not been bitten. And at night, you could hear the lizards and the iguanas running through the thatched hut. And one day out, in the, they went out to the little outhouse out the back, you know, they didn't have, uh, they just, no, no indoor facility. They went out to the back and she said, uh, Linda said, when I went in there, I saw something, it was, it was dark, so I couldn't make out what it was. And finally, when I got enough light, it was a snake coiled up in the outhouse. Just challenging me to come on in. And they'd been there seven years, a child was born. When the tribal chief saved. Can you, remember, can you remember what you were doing seven years ago? I can't even remember what I was doing seven years ago. Can, can you remember what, where you were seven years ago? I, I don't, I don't, I'll have to think about it a little bit. What I was doing, where I was. For seven years, they lived in these, under these terrible circumstances and all they did was to pray, not that God would get them out of there, but that God would give them power as they witnessed. And seven years later, the tribal chief was converted and the place where they were in was shaken and the prayer was answered. Well, look at verse 33 and 34. I want to show you the claim. Look at that. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That's the theory. They were saying, they were saying, you know, God raised Jesus from the dead. That was their witness. But you know, you know, you can. Uh, I mean, sermons are easy to pre to present, to proclaim. Anybody can preach. Well, most everybody can preach. Uh, I mean, you, I mean you, can, you can give a witness of the power of God. I mean, anybody can do that. I mean, you can stand up and, uh, and give a witness. I mean, the, there is a, 
there is a there is a, a a story going out, a definition going around. You know what a hypocrite is? You know the latest definition of a hypocrite. It's a teenage boy sitting in church holding hands with the best looking girl in school singing, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. I mean, you can say just about anything and, and a lot of folks do. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't take a whole lot to bear witness of the, of the resurrection. That's the theory and they were preaching uh, the, the, the theory of the resurrection. Let's see if they were backing it up. You bet you they were backing it up. Look at the next verse, and it says, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds and lay them at the feet of Jesus. Now you can talk a big story about the Christian life and the Christian faith. You can talk a big message about what God can do but if you don't back it up, the message is not worth hearing. And the backing it up is laying down your life just as he laid down his. Now I want to help you to understand how to get from the theory to the practice. And then we'll go home. How do you get from the theory to the practice? How do you become one of these Christians who is tough without and tender within? Whose, whose Christianity, whose religious faith is more than just talk? How do you do that? First of all, you have to have initiative. You've got to want it. You've got to want to be like that. Uh, I've been here two and a half years. I, I want more than the day I came here for this church to be the church of God. That I, I want more of that. I want that now more than it did then. And I've got a feeling that a lot of the enthusiasm that took place two and a half years ago is because we've got a new preacher here. And so I'm making the appeal tonight. You've got to want that for God's sake. You've got to want it. There's got to be a desire to see the place shaken that is greater than desire for any other thing. And somebody was visiting with me in my office this last week about, you know, why is it that we, you know, we offer all these marvelous things for people, Bible studies and, 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 and disciplines and, and, and discipleship things. People just, you know, you know, uh, take it or leave it. And I think that what we concluded in that little time was that we just don't want it bad enough. We have our priorities misdirected. There's so many other things we want more. And when that desire to see the place shaken and God in control and people saved becomes so intense that it's greater than any other desire, we'll get our priorities screwed back in the right place. Secondly, you've got to have initiative. Secondly, there must be compassion. I mean, that's something you don't work up, I guess. There has to be compassion. It's compassion, uh, the, it's compassion of your life. Now let me ask you this question. This, and I ask myself that, this same question. Let, let's just think. 
what, from, from last Sunday noon, let's say from last Sunday noon to this Sunday noon, what did you do literally just to help someone else? I mean, what did you do to minister to someone else that has some eternal or lasting significance to it? What, have you, what did you do from Sunday noon to this Sunday noon that, can, that, that, that fits into some kind of scheme that God has for the kingdom of God? Anything? There has to be compassion. Compassion for the lost and compassion for others. Third, this is it. There must be risk. Vulnerability, risk. C.S. Lewis says, if you want to keep, you know, if you want to keep... Uh, your love, if you want to keep from being hurt or running the dangers of love, he said, just you know, put it, put it aside, save it, preserve love, you know, preserve it. He said, put it in a casket, the casket of your own selfishness, and there in that casket, quiet, dark casket, uh, where there's no noise, there's no light, there's no uh, change. You've got your love and you've put it in a box. You've put it in a casket. You're not going to risk it. And in that casket of your own selfishness, that love will change and it will become hard and unbreakable and impenetrable and, and it'll die. And C.S. Lewis said it like this. Hear this, will you please? He said, the only place outside heaven where you can be safe from all the dangers of love is hell. And Edward Markham wrote a hundred years ago. He drew a circle and shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had a will to win. We drew a circle that took him in. And that is the indomitable, indefatigable, undefeatable love of a pioneer who is tough without, tender within. Let's pray together. Father, it's so much fun. It's so good to study your word, to preach it, to speak for you. Such a thrill. And yet, Lord, to come to your word is to find a mirror reflecting our own lives back to us. How tender we are without, so cowardly and weak. We let a drop of rain run the colors we let a drop of rain keep us from God we let the threat of a man a colleague appear cause us to quake and to fear 
We let an unpaid bill, a lack of money, terrify us. We let some lingering illness cause us terrible fear or fright. Lord, you are the maker of, of the heavens and the earth, the despota, the Lord, the absolute ruler and authority. Take that control of our life. Be that authority, that Lord, so that we could rest on the arm of the Almighty and be at peace. This is our prayer in Jesus' name for his sake. Now we have three invitations. The first invitation is for you to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And I allow Him to be the absolute Savior and Lord. Second invitation is for you to place your life in the church. God has led you to this place. The third invitation is for you to submit to the authority of God, the Lordship of Christ. Right here in this very church, about six years ago, five years ago, when I was preaching a revival, Somebody told me, right standing right there, I don't remember who it was, said, The Lord is not the Lord of my life, and I don't even want Him to be the Lord of my life, but I want to want Him to be the Lord of my life. And that's a pretty good place to begin. To want to want Him to be the Lord. If God is speaking to your heart tonight, and I sense in the faces and the reflections of conviction that God might be bringing to our heart in the power of His Spirit. If He speaks to you, the request for you to come forward is not my request. It's His. Whatever you decide to do will be in obedience or disobedience to God. So we'll stand and we'll sing. Is it three? 361. We'll sing it together. Let's stand and come.